Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, back again for more Qin State, including their most famous leader and the dynasty. Last week's episode, we saw how prior to Shangyang in 359 BC, the Qin were these rough and tumble, uncouth, and arguably not Han people from way out west. The Zhou Dynasty elites of the Yellow River Valley didn't particularly admire or respect them. But then along came Shangyang, who spiffed them all up, launched all these new reforms, and poached talented men from other states, attracting administrators and scholars. And thanks to Shangyang's reforms, the army's ranks swelled to numbers never seen before in China, or maybe anywhere for that matter. Shangyang's reforms organized the tax rolls, and money started pouring into the state coffers. And all these collective changes percolated for a hundred years before Ying Zheng came along and took the Qin state to the next level. I mentioned last time about Shangyang's big strong buddy, Duke Xiao. And when Duke Xiao died in 338 BC, his son was next in line, and this was King Hui Wen, or King Hui. As I mentioned at the close of last episode, he hated Shangyang from way back when. And when he was a prince and committed some offense, Shangyang made sure that the prince was not spared or given any special treatment and got himself banished for a while. Hey man, that was legalism. But once Duke Xiao died, the prince made himself a king instead of a duke. And as I said, he got his revenge on poor old Shangyang. So Shangyang, after all he had done to build up the Qin state and after all the reforms he introduced that made it happen, he got himself killed. He found out the hard way. The philosophy of legalism eh, cut both ways. So King Hui Wen had Shangyang killed, but he kept all his reforms in place. And the newly improved and fortified Qin state first tested their new wings to the south. All eyes at the palace looked eastward first. But in the end, it was decided to conquer the lands to the south and use those riches in present-day Sichuan, where the Ba and Shu kingdoms were, to help build up the Qin. Then, when they were strong enough, they could start thinking about taking on the more powerful states to the east and core China. The major obstacle in the way of an easy Qin march into the Shu state were the Qinling Mountains. Now, this mountain range separated the Wei River Valley in Shanxi with the Sichuan Basin, the breadbasket of China, where Chengdu is located. As the story goes, the Qin strategists hoodwinked the ruler of Shu into letting them build a road through the mountains so that they might send the Shu king gifts of stone cattle filled with gold. The king said, yeah, go ahead, and so... The Shenyo Dao, the Stone Cattle Road, got built right through the Qinling Mountains. And the Qin used that route to invade Shu in 316 BC and put an end to their unique and rich civilization. And not much longer after they took Shu, the Ba state centered around Chongqing also fell to Qin, and this whole annexation of Sichuan into the Qin state. Oh man, that was the Louisiana purchase of its day. If the Lufthansa heist made Henry Hill, the same can be said of the annexation of Sichuan for the Qin. Not only did this region become the breadbasket of China, it was rich in silk, 
minerals, copper, gold, salt, and iron. The grain of Sichuan ended up keeping the stomachs of the Qin soldiers nice and full. And we all know what Napoleon said about that. Wu Lijun won't be planting his seven tea trees on Meng Dingshan until a good century and a half after the untimely death of Qin Shi Huang. So when the Qin took the Ba Shu states, tea cultivation hadn't formally started yet. Sichuan, before the Qin conquest, was not anything like the culture of the Yellow River Plain. If you're familiar with the discoveries made at Sanxingdui and Jinsha, the ancients who called the Sichuan Plain their home had a very distinct and unique culture of their own. Nothing like what was going on in the cradle of Chinese civilization. But after the Qin took over in 316 BC, they pretty much erased all evidence of this civilization, at least for 2,000 years. In no time at all, Sichuan became as sinicized as you see it today. Hey, go check out my CHP 276 episode on the history of Sanxingdui and Jinsha to learn more about this land. They didn't leave behind much of anything in the form of written history, but a lot of artifacts have been pulled from the ground, attesting to the uniqueness of their civilization. Shangyang's reforms, much to the chagrin of the inhabitants down in Sichuan, were rolled out across the former Ba Shu lands. This newly conquered area became the testing ground for everything that would be later implemented nationwide in China. And these reforms really helped to quickly incorporate Sichuan into the growing Qin state. Citizens from Qin looking for a little adventure flooded into Sichuan and helped populate that area. The Qin had some big plans for this area, and the more people they could settle down there, the better. Well, if any of you have never heard of Shangyang, then for sure you never heard of Fan Ju. These two, more than anyone else, made the Qin dynasty. Shangyang, with his two waves of reforms, put the Qin house in order and put them on a war footing. Fan Ju was someone of high repute as a politician and strategist. And like Shangyang, he also originally hailed from Wei State. He is remembered for his famous and winning strategy of Yuan Jiao Jin Gong, make allies of those far away and use them to defeat those who are nearby. This essentially called for an end to the way things had been handled thus far in Qin. Alliances had often been made for whatever short-term expediency arose, and resources were wasted fighting battles for lands far away that couldn't be held anyway. Fan Ju said, You had to expand from the inside out. The states of Wei, Han, and Zhao were too close for comfort. They had to go. And as a precursor to taking them down, the Qin had to create allies of those states who bordered Wei, Han, and Zhao on the other side. Never mind that one day their end would have to come too, but for now, they were needed as allies. The Qin king Zhao Xiang reigned 306 to 251 BC. He's three kings after Duke Xiao. Duke Xiao, by the way, was the last of the dukes. His successor, Hui Wen, adopted the term Wang for his official title, hence, King Zhao Xiang, Duke Xiao. Duke Xiao had Shangyang, King Zhao Xiang had Fan Ju. After taking a couple of beatings at the hands of the other warring states, and most of all from the neighboring Zhao state, Fan Ju took it upon himself to travel from Wei to Qin 
and he was able to get an audience with King Chaoxiang. And when he got his chance to stand before this very, very long reigning king, he was able to convince him that the methods he was using to attain supremacy were all wrong. He explained his whole Yuan Chao Jin Gong strategy, and soon after that, the incumbent chancellor was out, and in 266 BC, Fan Ju was in. Fan Ju's great achievement was to help facilitate the creation of the autocratic monarch. I know, blame him. From the earliest times, no one single ruler could project power or enforce his will upon anyone beyond a certain distance. In the decades since Xiangyang died, the reforms, despite the occasional pushback, took hold. And the state was much more manageable now. Further to that, pioneer peasants from the eastern states had moved to Qin to try their luck. And this allowed more land to be cultivated, which led to more grain being produced. And the army just kept getting bigger. Not only was this good for the economy, but now a centralized army could be fed by a single king. The needs to depend on nobles to fight one's battles became obsolete. Now, full-time professionals who knew military strategy could be brought into the king's employ and would serve only him. So the armies became much bigger and more professional. And because the organized state was booming economically, the financial wherewithal to field these massive six-figure armies became possible. Then add to the mix all the great technological advances in weaponry that enhanced a soldier's effectiveness on the field of battle. Fan Ju taught his king, if you were able to utilize such shock and awe tactics and overcome your enemy, he had to finish the job down to the last combatant. No one could be left alive to come back and bite you another day. And so in the mid-3rd century BC, the period began where you'd have these massive battles and tens and tens of thousands, sometimes more than a hundred thousand, would die in the course of a single battle. Only Qin had reformed like they did, reforming society and reforming the military. And everything now was focused on one single king who had the final say with regard to the taxes and the army. Everything was concentrated in one single person. He ran the system. In other states, they were still stuck in the Zhou dynasty with enfiefed nobles and reliance on too many others with their own hidden agendas. Qin Shi Huang gets way more credit than he deserves. He didn't just appear out of nowhere and carve out this new nation. Improvements to the Qin state had been going on for more than a hundred years before Ying Zheng was born. But as we'll see, the first Qin emperor was a perfect capstone to all these reforms. He really took the whole idea of a tyrannical autocratic monarch to its ultimate level. Qin Shi Huang sort of comes off these days as the man who did it all. He founded China's first imperial dynasty. He put reforms in place that stuck around for a couple thousand years. He put China on the track to global greatness. And on the tyrannical side, we remember him for his acts of violence, vengeance, and the long string of massive civil engineering feats, most notable the Great Wall and his mausoleum with the terracotta warriors. And from that Joseph Needham podcast, part one, we recall the Dujiangyan irrigation system built between the 270s and 250 BC. Li Bing served as the governor down there and acted as the head of this 
massive hydraulic and civil engineering project called for by King Zhaoxiang that quietly and without even a drop of fanfare influenced the future course of Chinese history and is still very much in use today. King Zhaoxiang of Qin had Fan Zhu to aid him politically and Bai Qi to represent him on the battlefield. More battle deaths went down under King Zhaoxiang than with any other Qin king. This was thanks in part to Bai Qi. The people of Mei Xian, Mei County in Shanxi province, claim Bai Qi as one of their native sons. That's right on the Wei River in Qin country. Just shy of a million deaths have been attributed to Bai Qi, a feat that earned him the nickname of the Butcher of Men, the Rentu. And when you figure about 1.6 million troops were killed by the Qin army over the 130 years of conflict, Bai Qi yeah, gets most of that credit. He was one of the Sida Mingjiang, the four great generals of the day of the Warring States period. Lian Po, Li Mu, and Wang Jian were the other three. And like the 1972 Miami Dolphins, Bai Qi was undefeated. He never lost a battle. Lian Po and Li Mu, both Zhao generals, well, we'll talk about them when we discuss the Battle of Changping. Li Mu's claim to fame was to push the Xiongnu back far away from China proper. Wang Jian was one of Ying Zheng's men, and he led the Qin to the ultimate defeat of the Chu state. Bai Qi began to rise up the Qin ladder in 294 BC. As the Zuo Shu Zhang, or left militia general, he achieved his first major victory, defeating the Han and Wei states, where today's Yichuan County is, located in Hunan, just south of Luoyang, near the famous Longmen Grottoes. This was Fan Zhu's strategy. Han and Wei were Qin's neighbors to the east, and they had to go. Like I said, the age of mass infantry was all the rage, and this Battle of Yichue, modern-day Longman, saw a combined force of 240,000 Han and Wei troops, the Han Wei Lianjun, versus 120,000 men under Bai Qi, by 293 BC, Bai Qi had beaten the Han and Wei armies sufficiently enough so that they were never able to rise again or pose a challenge to Qin. And as was Bai Qi's signature move, all Han and Wei survivors from the battle were put to the sword. Ying Zheng will finish off the Han in 230 BC and Wei in 225. This first victory for the Qin, led by Bai Qi, turned a few heads from out east. With lands they seized from the two vanquished states, the Qin were now inside the Yellow River Valley. In 292, Bai Qi's forces invaded Wei and seized 61 cities and towns. The following year, in 291, both Bai Qi and one of his generals, Sima Cuo, drove Wei to the brink, and they sued for peace and took themselves out of the competition. With Wei and Han out of the picture... The obvious direction to turn was south, towards Chu. In 278 BC, the Chu will be the next power to fall to the Qin state. And from 280 into the 270s, Qin used their military power and political tricks to keep the Chu state down. Also, if you remember from the Wu state episode, the people who resided in Chu state culturally weren't at all like the Huaxia people from the north. 
The next big milestone for the Qin was the annihilation of Zhao at the Battle of Changping, following the three-year siege of Zhao's capital in modern-day Handan, Hebei province. Changping was the site of a three-year conflict that lasted from 262 to 260 BC. This is the famous battle that saw the ultimate defeat of the Zhao army. Lots of legends and stories about this battle. It all began when Qin picked a fight with the Han state in 265. This is still the time of the pugnacious King Zhaoxiang. Without getting into the gory details, Han emissaries were sent to Zhao for help. The king of Zhao agreed to come to the aid of their ally in Han, which led to a state of open hostilities between Zhao and Qin. And this is where another of the Sida Mingjiang, the four great generals of the Warring States period, Lian Po, is most remembered. Lian Po, seeing how great and mighty the Qin were looking, decided to build fortifications that would keep them out. The Qin had marched east to take Zhao An and had marched far from their base. Lian Po was sure the supply lines would be exhausted sooner or later. He just had to slow them down. Through a little warring state's chicanery behind closed doors, the Zhao ruler was tricked into relieving Lian Po of duty and replacing him with Zhao Kuo, son of the famous Zhao general Zhao She. Zhao Kuo was supposed to be a real military genius, but on paper only. He hadn't been battle-tested yet. He knew how to talk strategy when standing over a map. In fact, lovers of Chinese Chengyu can appreciate this one. It's from Zhao Kuo that we get the saying, Zhi Shang Tan Bing, to discuss military strategy on paper only. With King Xiaocheng of Zhao tricked into sidelining his best man, Lian Po, Zhao Kuo led a massive Zhao force of 450,000 men against the Qin 600,000. The Battle of Changping is the biggest battle that the planet had seen to date, and for a long time after that, too. Ying Zheng will be born right after this battle. 260 BC, Zhao Kuo took over command of Zhao forces. Bai Qi had not been used in these campaigns against Zhao, but now, seeing the ruse to replace the more experienced Lian Po with the weaker Zhao Kuo, King Xiaoxiang put the Ren Tu, the butcher of men, in the game right here. Zhao Kuo versus Bai Qi. It was a terrible mismatch. As the battle began, Bai Qi had laid a trap that divided the Zhao troops and forced Zhao Kuo into a kind of Custer's last stand. He was killed in battle. And like the Red Army during the Huaihai campaign in 1948, millions of peasants had been mobilized by the Qin state to assist the army in all kinds of ways, keeping them resupplied and fed. Sima Qian says 450,000 Zhao soldiers were either killed or survived and then buried alive. The Qin and Zhao states had been going at each other for the longest time. This had to be the end of it. No army remnants could be allowed to survive who could be reconstituted into a future Zhao force. I don't know how hundreds of thousands of men got buried alive. Mankind over the millennia has figured out all kinds of efficient ways to mass-produce the act of murder. I don't know how they did it, but after the Battle of Changping, the state of Zhao never rose again. And 
into our very day. They're still digging skeletons out of the ground in and around present-day Gaoping in Shanxi province. The Qin army did not get away unscathed. A quarter million Qin soldiers also perished at Changping. This wasn't a minor conflict that the Qin were able to quickly shake off. They, too, took a big hit and needed time to bounce back from this most epic of battles. After the Battle of Changping, I guess you could say the next big year for the history books was 256 BC. That was the year the Zhou Dynasty fell. What a nice long run the Qi family of Zhou had enjoyed. 1046 to 256 BC, 790 years. The last of the Qi clan to reign for the Zhou was King Nan, Zhou Nan Wang. He lasted 59 years on the throne, a record in its day. The Zhou kings by this time hardly got any face from any of the surrounding states. No one took them seriously, and the Qin simply moved in and annexed what were left of the Zhou lands in Henan province. King Zhaoxiang of Qin, he reigned a good 55 years, 306 to 251 BC, the start of the Punic Wars over in the Mediterranean. I know I said this last time, but as far as the Qin dynasty and all the systems of government and national administration that got passed down through the ages, don't give all the credit to Qin Shi Huang. It was this king, Zhao Xiang, and also Duke Xiao, Duke Mu, Shanyang, Fan Ju, Bai Qi, and a whole other cast of lesser-known characters who put the Qin on a solid foundation. By the time 13-year-old Ying Zheng took over the kingship from his father, Zhuangxiang, in 247 BC, the entire Qin state was already locked and loaded, man. Qin Shi Huang didn't conquer China by himself. He finished off the remaining states and mopped up more than anything else. Here is where our story starts to get a little more interesting. With this King Zhaoxiang, whose long reign saw more gore and violence than ever before in Chinese history, the history of the Qin starts to get a little weird. By the time Zhaoxiang's son succeeded him as king, he was already quite old, and this son of Zhaoxiang was Qin Shi Huang's grandfather. Not much to say about this King Xiaowen, except that three days after his coronation, he died. William Henry Harrison lasted ten times as long. The short reigning Xiao Wen was succeeded by the Qin Emperor's father, Zhuangxiang. Here's where we have little to go on except what Sima Qian tells us. And parts of this story, geez, I didn't know if I was reading the Shi Ji or Decadence Manchu. It's a well-known historical fact. The Han Dynasty that followed the Qin had everything to gain from dumping all over the Qin Dynasty, Qin Shi Huang, and, and everything there was about the people of Qin State in the official court history. So this sordid little story regarding Qin Shi Huang's paternity is always playing out in the background. The characters in this drama, opera, farce, or whatever you want to call it, are King Zhuangxiang and his son Ying Zheng, the future Qin Emperor. There's Liu Bu Wei, Zhao Ji, Lao Ai, Li Si, Zhao Gao, Fu Su, Hu Hai, Meng Tian, and several others orbiting this tempest. Our story begins with the sudden and mysterious death of King Hui Wen three days into his reign. Whenever something like that happens, well, it's reasonable for anyone to have their doubts about natural causes being the causa de morte. 
Enter Liu Bu Wei, 291 to 235 BC. So with those dates, right away you know he's a pre-Qin Dynasty character. Ying Zheng's father, King Zhuangxiang, prior to becoming King of Qin, had drawn the short straw when he was younger and had to serve many years in Zhao as a political hostage. And while roughing it in Zhao, this future King Zhuangxiang, then named Zichu, met Liu Bu Wei. There are all kinds of oily references to Liu Bu Wei being this ambitious and manipulative merchant from Wei State. And he sidled up to this Qin royal, Zichu, and whispered all kinds of things in his ear to get him all juiced up. He said he was a well-connected person with friends in high places who had some influence at the Qin court. Liu Bu Wei promised he could stack the deck in such a way that he could make Zichu the heir to the throne rather than the crown prince. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. So after King Xiao Wen has his three days of greatness, 249 BC, Zichu is thrust onto the throne and reigns a very anemic three years. Liu Bu Wei had successfully persuaded King Xiao Wen's wife, Lady Huayang, to adopt Zichu in order to get rid of that little problem of not having any sons of her own. So by Lady Huayang adopting Zichu, this put him next in line for the throne. And Liu Bu Wei, for being the kingmaker that he was, joined the inner circle of King Zhuangxiang's court and served as his chief minister or chancellor. In addition to this, Liu Bu Wei served as the regent for the young teenage crown prince, Ying Zheng. As Sima Qian tells it, Ying Zheng's birth mother was Liu Bu Wei's former main squeeze. She was a courtesan or someone who earned their livelihood with good looks and quick wits. She was Lady Zhao, Zhao Ji. Zichu fell head over heels in love with her and Liu Bu Wei put on his green hat and allowed his lady to cultivate this relationship. When Lady Zhao announced she was pregnant, Liu Bu Wei had to count on his fingers to see if, well, maybe, perhaps this child was his. Sima Qian didn't use these exact words, but he maintains that Liu Bu Wei and Ying Cheng, well, they shared a similar DNA profile. Reigning only three years, King Zhuangxiang didn't list any marquee achievements as far as further Qin conquests. When he died in the third year of his reign, the crown prince, only bar mitzvah age, 13 years old, he became the new king. And it was decided that in Ying Zheng's minority, Liu Bu Wei would serve as his regent. And this would last till 247 BC. Let me just quickly mention it was right here where the Zhengguo Canal was built. This second of the three great water projects of the Qin joined together the Jing and Luo rivers, both tributaries of the Wei. At first, this project had been launched as a ruse between Han and Qin. The Han rulers, fearing Qin's growing strength, tried to tie them down with this impossible civil engineering project. About halfway through the construction, the Qin ruler found out what was going on, but he had been convinced by the designer, Zheng Guo, that if they finished it, the results would be very good for Qin, and no truer words were spoken. In 246 BC, when it opened, 27,000 square kilometers of land, the size of Massachusetts, was turned into a fertile plain, and the crops grown in this part of Shanxi helped Qin Shi Huang keep his army well-fed. 
For these few years, with King Zhuangxiang cold in his tomb, Liu Bu Wei went back to Lady Zhao, now the Queen Dowager. And he picked up where he left off before he fobbed the then Lady Zhao off on the future Emperor of China's father. But that wasn't all. Now Lao Ai enters our story. He was Liu Bu Wei's creation and was brought in to distract the Queen Dowager, so to speak. And it's said Liu Bu Wei was getting paranoid about Ying Zheng twigging on the relationship he was having with the Queen Dowager, Ying Zheng's mother. It said Liu Bu Wei was getting paranoid about Ying Zheng twigging on the relationship he was having with the Queen Dowager, Ying Zheng's mother. So to do this, Liu Bu Wei welcomed Lao Ai into the Queen Dowager's quarters. Now this part of the palace was strictly off limits to men, so Liu Bu Wei arranged for a mock castration and total makeover for Lao Ai in order to make it look like he was a eunuch who served the former Lady Zhao. And she used Lao Ai as her new sexual plaything, and, well, nature took its course from there. And once she was pregnant, Lao Ai became emboldened and came out from behind the curtain and began to assert himself in the Qin government. Lao Ai suffered from that terrible handicap of never knowing when to keep his mouth shut. He went around making remarks suggesting that the king, Ying Zheng, was his stepson. Lao Ai and Ying Zheng's mother, the queen dowager, had two sons together. And in 238, Lao Ai bungled an attempted coup d'etat. And then 21-year-old Ying Zheng was on to him from the start. And the coup fizzled at once and all the plotters were executed. Lao Ai got the old Che Lie punishment that you recall from last episode. He got pulled apart in five easy pieces. Then, like Shangyang, his whole family was wiped out from the grandparents all the way down to the great-grandchildren. They all got whacked. Ying Zheng also didn't let his mother off the hook. He had her demoted for her role in the plot, and she spent the rest of her days under a form of house arrest. As for Liu Bu Wei, he did all he could to distance himself from the whole affair, but Lao Ai had been his creation, and he had to take responsibility. And just as Mao did with Lin Biao 2,200 years later, the future Qin emperor kept a close eye on Liu and put a lot of pressure on this one-time regent of his. And after it got to be too much, Liu Bu Wei was banished to Sichuan, and with that, he poisoned himself to death in 235 B.C., and that was the end of the whole creepy story of Liu Bu Wei, Lao Ai, and the Lady Zhao. It's often said that one man's loss is sometimes another man's opportunity. With Liu Bu Wei's demise, it left the path open for Li Si to take over the Chancellor's spot. And what Shang Yang was to Duke Xiao, Li Si was to Ying Zheng before and after he became Emperor Qin Shi Huang. And like Shang Yang, Li Si is going to die in multiple pieces. Li Si came from Chu. He was one of those men of talent and ambition who saw a bright future north in Qin. Li Si was a hardcore legalist and devoted his life to building and enhancing the power and authority of his king and later emperor. He really took over where Shangyang left off with respect to legalism's role in the Qin state. The careful and methodical eradication of the six remaining warring states was engineered by Li Si. The first ones to go were Han in 230 and what was left of Zhao in 228. 
the Zhao military man Lian Po, another of the four great generals, had been exiled and cast aside in favor of another of the four great generals named Li Mu, and he represented Zhao's last hope before they were put away for good. The Qin military leaders respected Li Mu and knew he wasn't an easy guy to beat. Qin spies who had been doing a splendid job sowing discord in the Zhao capital at Handan spun a web of intrigue that led the Zhao king to lose his trust in Li Mu. And once he was pulled from the roster and executed, the Qin were all smiles. And with the death of Zhao's last great hope, Zhao finally fell once and for all to Qin. Next up was the state of Yan in the north, where Beijing is. They knew what was coming and decided to take matters into their own hands. The plan for the first of three assassination attempts against Ying Zheng was hatched in this state. This is the story of Jing Ke and his clever but failed attempt to do away with Ying Zheng. The idea up in Yen was, if you cut off the head of this snake, the Qin would be neutralized. Jing Ke went to Qin as an envoy from Yen. Zhao and Han were out of the competition now, and Yen was next, so they tried to head off the inevitable. The plan called for Jing Ke to get close to Ying Zheng by presenting him with the head of his enemy. The plan called for Jing Ke to kill Ying Zheng with a poison dagger. Well, when the moment came, however, he got close, but not close enough. A sword battle ensued, and as Sima Qian tells it, Ying Zheng prevailed, and Jing Ke and his fellow assassin were killed. Ying Zheng was rightfully pissed about this and called Wang Qian, also, as I mentioned, one of the four great generals of the Warring States period. And in 226 BC, Yen submitted to Qin, and that was the end of them. And if you'd like to see a movie version of these events, may I humbly suggest Chen Kaige's The Emperor and the Assassin, starring Gong Li, and Zhang Yimou's film Hero with megastars Jet Li, Tony Leung, Maggie Zhang, Chen Daoming, Zhang Ziyi, and Donnie Yen starring. That was a good one. At this point, King Ying Zheng was just finishing off the job begun by his illustrious ancestors, King Zhao Xiang and Duke Xiao. The only states left standing will be pushovers. Yen State felt Ying Zheng's wrath and got hit hard, though they hung in there until 222 before the last of their resistance fizzled. Only Wei, Chu, and Qi remained. Both Wei and Chu had been worn down to the nub and were hardly the dangerous contenders they had once been, and Wei fell to Qin in 225. And the great and mighty Chu state, so rich in culture and so diverse in the people who lived in that state, after more than a million soldiers on both sides slugged it out, they fell to the victorious Qin general Wang Jian. Chu did the unthinkable and surrendered to the might of the Qin army. Those two states have been going at it practically from the time Qin began to emerge as an up-and-comer. But the Chu people didn't totally submit. They may have been defeated militarily, but the people of Chu, from the very beginning, put up all the resistance they could. This whole strict and draconian regime and way of life in Qin was transplanted to Chu, and the people there did not accept it. And for the entirety of Qin Shi Huang's short, decade-long reign, the conquered Chu never fully got with the program. And of course, you all remember from CHP episode 91, 
Xiang Yu, a man of Chu, is going to be the one who rises from the defeated state and drives the sword deep into the Qin dynasty and puts them away in 206 BC. The next year in 222, the Yen state, already pretty much out of the fight, were finished off in 222. Wang Jian again. That left Qi, the good old Qi state with its capital at modern-day Zibo. They were the state who comprised the northern portion of Shandong, the state of Lu, where Confucius came from, had once occupied the southern half of Shandong. And this land was known as Qi Lu Liangguo in Shandong. These are the two rival states, and Qi being the more powerful of the two. Along the way, Lu state had been taken over in 249 BC by their neighbor to the south, the Chu state. With only Qi left standing to take on the Qin state and Ying Zheng's generals going at it full throttle, the Qi rulers knew the end had come for them. What else could they do except fortify their western border and wait for the Qin onslaught? The only problem with that strategy was that the Qin army didn't attack Qi from this direction. They launched a surprise attack from the north. This time it wasn't Wang Jian leading the charge. It was his prodigal son, Wang Ben, another one of Qin's great generals. But he didn't make it to the top four. It was Wang Ben who delivered the final knockout punch in 221 BC. And ladies and gentlemen, that was that. But before we start talking about the first Qin emperor and his dynasty, let's put the book down and hold off until next time. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from an undisclosed location here in the City of Angels. Do come back next time for the exciting conclusion of this little three-part series that explores the rise and fall of the Qin. I'll see you then.